Okay, so the recording's back on and we're for our afternoon session. So our afternoon session is going to be from 1.30 to 4.30. We're going to start with, do the same thing. We'll talk for about 50 minutes, take about a 10 minute break and do that three separate times and we're going to get, hopefully get through steps four through nine this afternoon. Um, so <clears throat> with step four, I wrote down two prejudices I had again. So my prejudice with step four and five is thorough means how much I write and how long I write. <laughs> the big, other big um, prejudice was that a step four is an autobiography <laughs> and that I need to write everything I've ever done and if I miss, and miss it, it doesn't work and I cannot go back. And that idea that I'm as sick as my secrets. Okay? So let's compare that to what we're going to learn today with the fourth step. So, we're starting on page 64, right off where we stopped off. So there's going to be a kind of introduction we're going to go over about what the big book is saying, the fourth step, <coughs> the fourth step is, and then we'll get into the three inventories. The three inventories are resentments, fears, and sex conduct. So we start at the first full paragraph on page 64. Therefore, we started upon a personal inventory. This was step four. A business which takes no regular inventory usually goes broke. So this is where I like to point out that a regular inventory is, it, you know, we do steps four through nine and then we implement that skill set in 10 and 11. So I hear arguments even among big bookers, you know, do you live in 10, 11, and 12 and never go back? And other people say, no, no, you have to do a four through nine once a year. And other one says, no, you only do a four through nine when you're having a lot of trouble. And I honestly don't care. <laughs> what I care about is are you doing inventory? What you care to call it, who cares? So the question is, are you utilizing this skill set? So I often use a practical skill set like nursing. So if you go to nursing school and you graduate and you take your state um, exams and you pass it, but you never go into a hospital, do you really feel like a nurse? They, when you feel like a nurse is when you're in there and you're no longer, you know, I went to, I failed out of nursing school, so the reason I use that as an example. <coughs> but you would put a needle in an orange because it mimicked human skin, but that's nothing like putting a needle in a human skin. So it's when we implement that skill set that it's going to become depth and weight. So this is not something we do and then we're done and we never look at it again. It says uh, taking an inventory is a fact-finding and a fact-facing process. It is an effort to discover the truth about the stock and trade. One object is to disclose damage or unsaleable goods and to get rid of them promptly and without regret. If the owner of a business is to be successful, he cannot fool himself about values. So once again, I, I used to do these autobiography things. <coughs> and what happened was that I would get so emotionally charged up and angry and pissed off that that was not fact-finding and fact-facing. The big book approach to the fourth step is simply a series of lists. You know, it says one object is to discover damage and saleable goods. And I often talk about in high school, I worked at a department store in the handbag department and we had different inventories. Some inventories were simply how many handbags do you have? Other inventories were, you know, how, um, what are the best selling handbags because we need to get more of them in. And there were other inventories where we looked at what is not selling because let's put them on clearance, get them out of the store because we want to make room for the stuff that is, is selling. 
That's the inventory the fourth step is. I used to do inventories and write about a, st a lot of stuff that was totally irrelevant about you know, my life. You know, I used to write inventories where I write my assets. What's the object is we need to get unblocked. I'm not being blocked by my assets. So I'm, I'm trying to define damaged or unsaleable goods. <coughs> For those of you, again, around my age, if I was in a, in a store and I'm selling Betamax <laughs> tapes or VHS tapes, is that beneficial for a business? Anyone under 40 doesn't even know what that is. So that's the stuff I got to get rid of. Um, and to get rid of them promptly and without regret. You know, I, if I'm writing, you know, I, I'm very competitive. So if you wrote a three subject notebook worth of an inventory, I would write a, f a five subject notebook worth of inventory <laughs> and I would win. You know, that I would, if I wrote, you wrote for four months and I wrote for eight months, I won. This is not about volume. Promptly without regret. Now once again, when I get into the minutia of my life, when I'm trying to prove to you I'm right, basically. What happens is I get more invested in my resentments and more invested in my fears and more invested in my sex, sex conducts. So I want to do this promptly without regret. Now this is not the big book. This is my approach. One of the things that I do is when I start the fourth step with a sponsee, we make an appointment for the fifth step. Because the fourth step is really uncomfortable. One of the prayers I use going through the fourth step, and I do it in multiple times in my life is God help me to feel comfortable about feeling uncomfortable because I'm going to have to be willing to feel uncomfortable and if I have a date that I know when I'm given my fifth step then I know I'll, you know I, once again going back to my Catholic roots and if I could give up chocolate at rent chocolate at during Lent because I knew on Easter morning I was going to have that Easter basket right so if you know when, when you're giving away your fifth step it helps you sit in that uncomfortability that's been my experience but that's Kim Personally, again, I only, I, what I do is I give my sponsees seven to ten days. I don't want them sitting in it. It's just a series of lists. The more you sit in it, as my one friend Maria says, the fourth step is like sitting in a, a poopy diaper. We don't want you sitting in it too long. Okay? Um, but you're going to hear different teachers and your sponsor might be different with the timing and things. So my suggestion is listen to your sponsor. But I'm just going to, so I'm just sharing what you know what what I, I have found works for me, but promptly and without regret. I remember a girl texting me. I was I forgot I was doing something at night, but she texted me something about the fifth step. And I said yeah, and I mentioned the seven to ten days, and she's like really? I'm like yeah, really? Yeah, and I'm like well, she's like I've been in a fourth step for three years, <laughs> and I said have you been abstinent? And she said no. I said well maybe you need to rethink it. Like if, if it's not working for you, like be open to having a different experience. <coughs> so then they're going to go into the first um, inventory is resentments. So it says in that last paragraph on page 65, resentments is the number one offender. It destroys more alcoholics than anything else. From its stem all forms a spiritual disease. So. I, you know, I liked my resentments, justified a lot of my ills, you know, and the origin of the word resentment was sentir is to feel and re is to do over and over again. And what I found by doing this, this um, inventory was that it's not, speaking about football again, if you have the instant replay, it's an objective look at what just happened on the field. Mine wasn't an objective look. 
I would continue to make myself more innocent and then more guilty. So as I'm re-feeling it, I'm creating a newer, a newer story so that I feel better about whatever happened in my life or feel worse about whatever happened in my life, whatever I was doing. And it has the power to actually kill. So we need to get rid of these resentments. Now it says here, when the spiritual malady is overcome, we straighten out mentally and physically. And I just want to spend a moment on this. There are some <coughs> big book groups. I, I, I'm very, I really try to be very tolerant, not always successful. Um, but the one thing I have a really hard time with is when I, there's certain big book, um, especially phone meetings, that don't believe in the allergy. And they believe it's just a behavior. And they tell you to eat your way through the steps and God will teach you to moderate your eating. So this seems to be a line that they utilize a lot. This is low. It says here, when the spiritual malady is overcome, you straighten out mentally and physically. So you do this spiritual solution and then you straighten out physically. I've talked to some AA people about this too. So what they're saying is we have this twofold nature, right? Physical allergy, mental obsession. Put down the food, work the steps. We have that spiritual awakening. The spiritual malady is overcome. And then mentally we're going to start straightening out because as we practice these principles, we're going to become clearer, have that emotional sobriety that Bill talks about 15 years into his sobriety. And physically, from AAs, you're, you, know, you might have cirrhosis of the liver and your, your liver is starting to get better. You're not as malnutritioned because you're not eating. So what I think about it is, you know, you get through these steps. My, once again, my experience, I take people through the steps in about two or three months. If you have 150 pounds to lose, you're not losing 150 pounds in, in two to three months. But if you straighten out spiritually and you've been abstinent, you eventually will lose that weight. You're, you're, because you're, you're now going to be abstinent for a long period of time. I have bulimics that I work with that have thousands and thousands of dollars on their teeth because of all that acid that's been in their teeth. You know, there's people who, you know, um, have hip replacements and knee replacements because maybe they lost the weight, but years of all, all that, that's that grain on, on your um, joints is there. So that's what they're talking about. They're not talking about physically getting abstinent. They're talking about the consequences of our disease that has happened over decades are not going to turn off like a light switch and suddenly we're going to be thin and not have any medical, um, you know, consequences anymore. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I want to smash that delusion if any of you have been hearing that this is a justification for not putting the food down before you start. Okay. So in dealing with resents, resentments, we set them on paper. We list people, institutions, or principles with whom we are angry. So it's, it's simply a series of lists. We're not going to work left to right because that's when we get a little bit overly emotional. We're going to make these lists up and down. So the first one is, who ticks you off? When you're going through your day, who is your mind on? Who is taking up rent in your head for free? And sometimes it's like that word resentment. So I don't resent them, but they make me angry. That's a resentment. So just list them down. Once again, this is for me, going back to Catholic school again, <coughs> is um, I used to have to go to confession every single Friday as a six and seven, eight, nine, ten year old kid. I used to make up sins because I wanted something to say to the priest. Because what does a seven-year-old do? I remember once hitting my brother and thinking, oh, thank God I have something to tell the priest. <laughs> so I, what I'm saying that is you're not trying to create problems that aren't there. 
right? So if you were made fun of in third grade and you haven't thought about those kids since fourth grade, there's no reason to put it on there. I personally feel if you can put down 10 items that take up 80% of your day, that's more effective than writing down 100 items that you haven't thought of in the last 10 years. So keep it as simple as possible. What are those things that tick you off? The category is people. So if you are having a problem, I put down your immediate family. I'm sure there's something you can think of for them. Institutions are groups of people. So I had brought up politics before. If you're a Democrat, I'm sure the Republicans tick you off. And if you're a Republican, I'm sure the Democrats pick you off. Or maybe politics in general. Maybe it's government. Maybe it's the IRS. Maybe it's your kid's um, PTA, you know, PTA at, at your school. One of the weird ones I had was cheerleaders and, um, and football players. Because I didn't like the cool kids because I was a geek. So those, those were a group of people. It might be OA. It might be Overeaters Anonymous. It might be your home group. It might be your church. It might be another person's church. So any collective group of people. And then principles are a little bit harder. And once again, I'm not trying to make stuff up. So if, you don't, if you're not sure, um, <laughs> one of my principles was the rich keep getting richer and the poor keep getting poorer. One of my, so they're kind of like cliches that you wish weren't true. Like one of mine was, if you guys get that thing where they say, you know, oh, if only you lost weight, you have such a pretty face. Mm -hmm. I hate that because no one ever told me that. I hated hearing it because I, I was a really ugly kid. I had you know, braces and freckles and cystic acne. And then when somebody would say that to somebody else, one of my friends that was overweight, and I'm like, why aren't you saying it to me? So it's, it's all these little twists. We mentioned Harlan before, but one of his I love is um, his father came from war-torn Europe and none of his relatives were alive. He had no living relatives. So he hated the concept of blood is thicker than water because he didn't have relatives. But once again, don't try to make something up if you're not sure. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. I usually talk about this in the fourth column, but I find it's, it's much more advantageous to ask for people's experience versus their opinion. It's not uncommon for someone to say, I need help with my fourth column. You know, I don't know what your selfishness, descendancy, resentment, fear is. But what I find helpful is I tell my sponsees, call people and ask them to take you through one of, the, one of their resentments, all four columns. So call them up if you're kind of confused about how to like, how do you work a resentment with a dead person? Ask them if they can walk you through a resentment with somebody that was passed away. You know, ask someone, why well, don't understand this whole principle thing, how does that work? And ask them if they can give you an example of a, of a principle in their life. And I find that's much more beneficial. I think that, once again, my opinion, I think God speaks more through people's experience than their opinions. So it's, I find that really beneficial. So once we finish that list, down there, we go to the second column. So whatever that is for you, I often tell people, think about high school. How did you study? Were you someone that crammed the night before? Or were you somebody that kind of like studied a little bit every night? Because that's kind of the approach you probably would have to the fourth step. I'm someone that always studied a little bit every night. So for me, it was beneficial. Like I would do the first column, the next day I'd do the second column, the next day I'd do the third column. Other people might maybe take a 20 minute break and go back to it. So whatever you know works with your personality. But take a break. Like that takes down the emotional temperature. <coughs> and the second column is, why are you angry? This is what, it, what has you burned up. Now, the, the Joe and Charlie joke on page 65 is if you notice the cause, the longest one is 19 words, so I'm going to give you 20. 
because you once again we're not trying to be emotional about this think about if you have it like a <coughs> a grocery list and you're buying milk eggs bread let's say right you're not putting down milk because you know that sell-by date it really sucks because it was sour well before the sell-by date or eggs my husband was supposed to pick up the eggs and he forgot to pick them up no you just need milk eggs bread so you're just trying to put down what's what what is the cause and keep it in bullet points so for example I was using my mom my resentment with my mother was that she treated me like a child now what I want to do is give you 500 reasons and proof that she treated like a child so you believe me. I have to tell you the one object of my first fifth step was to make my, have my sponsor hate these people as much as I did. <laughs> that was my one object. So we're just trying to keep it unemotional. Couple different bullet points of what burns you up about that person. Then the third column is um, how what it affects now for me personally again you're going to hear different approaches I find it beneficial just to acknowledge what it affects if I start writing about what it affects I get emotionally upcharged again and I want to avoid that but I know a lot of people that like people to write about the, how it affects so the top of 65 it tells you the different categories does it affect my self-esteem how I feel about me my street cred my security, and security can be financial security, emotional security, um, you know, uh, financial security, what makes me feel safe. Our ambitions, what I want out of the future. And uh, our personal sex relations. And the last one, which isn't listed there, <coughs> but in the chart, is fear involved. So the form that I use actually has them listed there and you just put check marks. Does it affect my self-esteem? Check mark yes, no check mark no. And you go across them. And then you're done your third column. So you can see this doesn't take a lot of time. Now here's one of the problems I had. Even if I used the big book, I think there's a three column inventory. But the fourth column is the one where we really get to change and they didn't make it a chart and I don't read directions. I, in fact, I was thinking of, of this weekend, I bought a lamp from um, Aldi, this, this, store, this grocery store in my area, and I was putting it together. It takes everything in me to read directions. Like, I just want to put stuff together and, you know, and then I get all mad because it's a broken lamp because it fell apart. No, I didn't follow the directions, that's the problem. But it's so hard for me to, to, to go through, and I want to look at the pictures, I don't want to do the writing and everything. I was thinking about this weekend and I thought to myself, I need to read these directions and put this together. And the lamp is beautiful because I read the directions and did it exactly how the, they told me. Because I, I don't know about you, I often will say, why did they give me all these extra pieces? <laughs> <laughs> there really are no extra pieces, I just didn't put it together right. So if we go back to the bottom page 65, <coughs> it says, we went back through our lives. Nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty. So once again, that word thorough means did I follow the directions specifically versus how much I wrote. I remember being in an AA meeting with, my, with Chris and um, some girl got up and he was saying the same thing, thoroughness, and, and she goes, listen, I had a big, my, fifth, my fourth step had 1,200 resentments in it. Oh, oh my gosh. And he said to her, I'm thinking recording, that's, you're pretty effed up and you seem pretty proud of it. <laughs> and he was like, Ugh. because it's not a contest with that who wins, you know. So it's like I said, just it's just simply putting down what what takes up rent in my head for free. When we were finished, we considered it carefully. 
<coughs> the first thing apparent was that this world and its people were often quite wrong. To conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got, and the usual outcome is that people continued to wrong us and we stayed sore. So to me, that's a warning if I stay in those first three columns. So I realize now I've taken inventories my entire life because I've had a diary since probably third grade. And every diary was who I'm mad at, what they did to me, and poor little me, how it affected me. And that never got me anywhere except crawling into the rooms of Overeaters Anonymous. So I got to get past that story. You know, one of the, I, I, I don't, I, I'm, it drives my mom crazy, but I do journal and I throw it out the second it's done. Like, I don't, I'm not someone that keeps journals, but I have this one journal, <coughs> I think it was sixth grade, and it cracks me up because on the one side is, Lori was mean to me, my mom did this to me, blah, 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 and the other side was my secret life with Scott Baio. <laughs> and all the different things me and Scott Baio would do together. So, this, so even as a young child, once again, not a food addict at that point or developing, but I lived this fantasy life. My life was so uncomfortable that I had to create this entire fantasy life. Is anybody Googling Scott Baio? I probably don't even know who he is. Um, yeah, he's from Chachi from Happy Days. Um, but that, that just shows me that, once again, my untreated alcoholism, even as a young kid, I, I didn't know how to deal with real life. Okay, so if we continue that first full paragraph on page 66. It is plain that a life which includes deep resentment only leads to futility and unhappiness. To the precise extent we permit these, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile? So what I started to see was how am I going to live in 2019 if I'm still living in the 1990s or the 1980s in my case. So I see that, that the reason I'm so miserable is because I can't get out of what happened to me 15 years ago. I can't, I can't focus on my current relationship because I'm still living in my past relationships. But with alcoholics whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience. <coughs> you know, we often talk about these big book thumpers and stuff. I'm not a, one of the, but the um, is they haven't changed the first 164 pages since it's written. Here's a change in that paragraph. But with alcoholics whose hope, the first edition said whose only hope. So I just think it was an act of humility of them to recognize that you know this is our path, but there's other paths. There's other paths. So, so is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience. This business of resentment is infinitely grave. It's fatal. We die. We must be free of anger. And it's poison. So it sounds kind of serious, right? And I love the line, we had to be free of anger. The grouch and the brainstorm were not for us. And once again, I'm a kid of the 70s. So... I, that kind of confused me because the grouch to me is a character on Sesame Street that lives in a trash can. <laughs> and the brainstorm is a, is a marketing technique that um, you, know, you, you throw out ideas. But back in the 1930s, what that was was the grouch was someone who was angry all the time. And the brainstorm was someone who had sudden fits of anger. We're talking about prejudices. My dad used to say when I was growing up, oh, Kim's Irish is coming out, because I would have these sudden bursts of anger. And I'd hold it in, hold it in, and have explosions. And I told someone, I can't remember who I told now, that I did the DNA tests 
like last year and I found out I'm only 6% Irish. <laughs> so apparently that prejudice, that excuse is out the window. And I'm actually 3% Russian Jew, so I'm almost as much Jewish as I am as Catholic, um, Irish Catholic. <coughs> so, and it says it's the dubious luxury of normal men. So once again, in my, in my office, with all the stuff that's going on, my corporate office is not behaving well, and everyone is justifiably angry. But I can't afford that as a compulsive overeater. So I have to do, be doing my 10 and 11 work on, otherwise I, my consequences is I will eat. And I, just as a little side note, what had happened was, um, <laughs> the girls, there's like three of us that are kind of all the same title, so if we get laid off, it's gonna be one of us. And um, they said something to me about me being arrogant or something, I forget the word they use, and I'm like, I'm like, what are you guys talking about? And like, well, you obviously know you're not gonna get laid off. You're, you're calm, cool, and collected. And I looked at her, and the one girl has her brothers in AA, and I said, Susan, listen, as a member of a 12-step program, I can't afford to get as angry as you guys are getting. Don't think that I'm not upset. I said, I'm, I said, when I go home, I do a lot of step work on this stuff. And I said, do you want me to tell you why I think I'm the one who's gonna be laid off? And I gave them the four top reasons, and they looked at me and said, I think you're right. <laughs> I think you will be laid off. But the difference is I can't wallow in it the way that they do. I can't afford that as a compulsive overeater, so I have to do the spiritual work. That old idea of the beautiful swan who's got the feet going crazy underneath the water, that's my reality. I might look calm, cool, and collected. You know, for those of you who listen to Vision for You, I say this and I say it as a joke and I mean it too. I can hold my shit together for three minutes. It's a three minute share. I think a lot of times people think that, that people on that line have these perfect lives. They don't. They don't. I remember listening to one girl um, recently who I haven't talked to in a while and on her special edition she mentioned she has, she has cancer and lost her hair and all this stuff and I'm like, I would have no idea listening to her three-minute shares that she's going through cancer treatment because we're there to share the message of hope but the other tw you know 23 hours and 57 minutes follow me around you'll see I'm a compulsive overeater that needs to work the steps really hard okay um, so here it says we turn back to the list for it held the keys to the future we were prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. Now the wording I always heard is I have to look for my part. Now if I have a part, obviously you have a part. I get caught up in that. I like the language in here. It says we prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. And in fact I have in the margins, am I prepared to do that? Because a lot of times I don't want to do that. Um, so this, this analogy I thought was a really good one. Think of it like a court case. So in the court case, I'm the prosecuting attorney, <coughs> and I, what I do is I say who's guilty, column one, column two, what they're guilty of, and column three is how they affected society. And now I have to look at it from an entirely different angle, I'm being asked to be the defense attorney. And I have to look at it. And that is that really helped me understand why I have to look at it from an entirely different angle. It says, in this state, the wrongdoing of others, fancied or real. Oh, we, we began to see that the world and its people really dominated us. I often use this example. I had really, really bad teeth as a kid. It was actually considered a birth defect. When I started to lose my teeth, two and, like two and three teeth were coming in. So I had layers of teeth. 
and um, I was like 10 years old and I was called Bugs Bunny and Hungry Hungry Hippo and all this stuff and the, the dentist got concerned because my overbite was so severe my front teeth were actually getting loose so they put me in braces at 10 and I wore them till I was 17 years old so I was in braces and they had to extract eight teeth before they even put me in braces because I had so many teeth in my mouth so I get off my braces at 17 and then I go to college and my sophomore year they had like little like elections and stuff and I was voted best smile and I started crying because I knew that couldn't be true I knew they were making fun of me because I couldn't believe with all those kids at 10 years old were more alive to me at 20 than when I was 10 so this people dominate that's what happens like something happens to you when you're 10 and you define your life by it and you're 45 years old so that, I remember Dr. Phil episode actually, this girl got up and she said that she had never told anybody but she had been raped 20 years earlier. And, and he said, okay, so a man violated you in a moment in time 20 years ago and you've chosen to live that the last 20 years. And I thought, oh my God. Like that, that we take these traumas and we make it more and more real. In fact, I'll tell you a funny thing. So I'm 17 when I get them off, at 19, my 12-year molars start coming in. And when my 12-year molars come in at 18, it starts to shift my teeth. So they put two braces back here, tried to pull the molars down. And when I was 19, I went, you know, went to the orthodontist and he said, Kim, I'm so sorry, it's not working. We're gonna have to put you back in full braces. And I said, okay, and never went back. And I had, had a brace in the back of my mouth for, I'm 52, so for over 30 years, I've had a brace back in my mouth. And every time a, a, a dentist says, well, why don't you take it out? I'm like, what are you gonna charge me? And then we just, $250. I'm like, it's okay, it's back there, no big deal. I've had it there for 30 years. I finally got it removed, um, like, like, I don't know, like a month ago. And it's so weird, like, to not have that brace back there. But it just, just reminds like, you know, we have these prejudices again. And here I am living with this brace for 30 years because I was afraid at 19 to have to go back in full braces. You know, it's crazy. So it says, in, um, in this state, the wrongdoing of others, fancied or real, had the power to actually kill. So I use this, I, I often use this now. I keep saying I often, because if you guys listen to my podcast, I feel like you're, I feel bad you have to hear the same damn stories, but. Um, so I'm doing my four step, my mother's in OA, so I can talk to her a little bit, you know, more than a, most mother, mother daughters. And I remember going to my big, supposedly Irish Catholic family, um, on my mom's side, and I'm the oldest in my family, but I'm the youngest among my cousins. Most of my cousins are a lot older than I am. And I remember trying to be a good little girl, and invariably my mom would come over and say, that's it, we're out of here. And we would all be taken out. And the next time I would try to be smaller and quieter and stay in the corner, and my mom would still come over and say, that's it, we're out of here. And I could not figure out what I did wrong. So I said to my mom, I said, do you know what that was? And she's like, I don't know, Kim, let me think about it a couple days. And she comes back to me and she's like, Kim, I think I know what this is. Now my grandfather, my mom's dad, was an active alcoholic till the day he died. Never went to AA. In fact, when he died, they questioned his alcohol level because they could not believe how much alcohol he had in him the day he died of a heart attack. Um, and my mom said she knew which beer put him over the edge. And she never wanted her children exposed to her father that way. So as soon as he took that beer, he came over to us kids and said, that's it, we're out of here. So it had nothing, nothing to do with me. 
And I have to tell you, it made sense, some stuff. Like my, my cousins would tell these funny stories about my grandfather walking downstairs in his underwear and having to pull him out of bushes. And I didn't know what the heck they were talking about. It was because my mom didn't want me exposed to it. Now, just to say that's a child's perspective, right? But my brother, one brother, is a year and a half younger than me, and I asked him about this incident. And he doesn't even know what I'm talking about. So here the two of us were in the same exact location as young children, about the same age. But my alcoholic brain, who absorbs everything as a personal affront, you know, filtered that. And to this day, when I come into a room, I don't know if you've noticed that when I first come in, I, I do kind of go off in the corner. It's just my natural instinct is to get quiet and not be noticed. And I can I do ten steps on and I you know I I can socialize with you guys now a little bit easier, even though, even though I'm an introvert. Um, but that's the kind of idea, like that fancied or real, it had the power to actually kill. I'll give you one more example. Um, once again, I have this, you know, buck teeth, I have cyst really bad cystic acne, and um, actually my, I used to wear socks to bed on my hands because I, otherwise I'd pale my, I'd wake up all bloody from me in the night, like hit my, my, uh, my acne. Um, so when I started in my early, late 20s, early 30s, started to not have the acne problem. I, the way I dealt with it is I put lots and lots of makeup on my face, trying to cover up all this acne. So in my late 20s, early 30s, my skin was clearing up so I didn't wear makeup that often. I, I don't like to wear makeup personally. And my mother would always say to me, Kim, put some makeup on. Put some makeup on. Put some lipstick on. And I know she's telling me I'm ugly. And I'm like, why does she keep telling me that I'm ugly? So finally I said to her, I said, you know, why are you doing like, do you think I'm that ugly that I have to cover up? And she's like, what are you talking about? Well, my mom grew up at a time where she wasn't allowed to wear makeup in Catholic schools back during the American Bandstand era. Um, and that she, my mom, and I thought, my mom actually has, my mom's 77, she has, she has cosmetic tattoos. She has tattoos of her eyebrows, tattoos of her eyeliner, and tattoos of lip liner. That's how important makeup is. That she, when she feels good about herself, is she puts her makeup on. So what she was trying to say to me was, Kim, I think you're beautiful. Put makeup on to celebrate that. And what I'm hearing is you're so gosh darn ugly, cover that face up. So it just tells that we don't know what people are saying. And the running joke now is when I see my, I, I don't wear makeup on the weekends, and if I see my mother, I'll put make, I won't put lipstick on, I hate lipstick. But like, I, I'm like, mom, I'm seeing you, so I put some makeup on. It's like a running joke with us now, because I didn't, we were crossing, does that make sense? We're crossing to those paths. And a lot of times we find out what we thought happened really didn't happen when we're doing this. But the, but the point of this is that fancied or real, it's having consequences on our life. So it says, um, <coughs> how could we escape? We saw that these resentments must be mastered, but how? We could not wish them away any more than alcohol. <coughs> so the good news is, I don't have to live with this anymore. They can be mastered. I don't have to live with these resentments. So the next thing is what I call the sick man's prayer, because that freedom from bondage prayer in the back of the book, everyone calls that the resentment prayer. So even though this is a resentment section, I call it the sick man's prayer, just to differentiate. So it says, this was our course. Um, this was our course. We realized that people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. Though we did not like their symptoms and the way they disturbed us, they, like ourselves, were sick too. 
So though we did not like their symptoms, which is column two, and the way they disturbed us, which is column three, they like ourselves are sick too. As soon as I separate myself, they're sick and I'm not, I'm not gonna feel compassion. So I have to see they like ourselves are sick too. We ask God to help us show them the same tolerance and pity and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick friend. When a person offended, we said to ourselves, this is a sick man, how can I be helpful to him? <coughs> the way that I've personalized this now is my youngest brother is learning disabled. Very high functioning, emotionally, he's in his 40s, but he's mostly probably like a 13 or 14 year old kid, and he reads at like a second or third grade level. And if we go out to dinner, you know, out to eat together, he has a hard time with the menu, reading it. And I can see the waiters and waitresses thinking he's a real jerk. And I can see the moment that it slipped, that it's, that, that, and I can't, can't do it. Uh, the moment that it switches, where they realize he's not a jerk, he's having a hard time with the menu, and they are absolutely wonderful with him. They're so sweet, so supportive, it's great. So I thought to myself, what if I can treat the world the way I wish the world treated my brother? What if I can assume that everyone has some sort of disability that I can't see? That's changed my life. I know for myself, again, with my, with my brother, he, had a lot of, he, he doesn't have any physical handicaps, but he went to school with a lot of kids with physical handicaps, and I used to get so angry at people that parked in the handicap spots. How dare they? Like, I would sit there and wait to see if they walked out and didn't have a limp or something. But now that I'm older, I have friends that have it who have fibromyalgia and have hip issues. Just because I can't see that they have some sort of reason to have a handicapped parking spot doesn't mean they don't. And even if they don't, why am I getting involved with that? <laughs> why do I care? So what this tells me is that, you know, I heard an AA speaker once sometimes too, <coughs> the key to happiness is I forgive the first, 14, first 40 assholes I meet every single day. <laughs> because that's, that's the problem is I let people get to me. And that's why this next line, God save me from being angry, thy will be done. That is my sick man's prayer. Because once again, if my sanity is based on how other people act, I am screwed. But if God can save me from being angry, which means I can find peace regardless of how other people are behaving, then my whole experience will change. I remember, you know, back before, you know, Facebook and everything, we used to have those email chains of different stories and stuff. <coughs> and I remember getting one where it was this king that put out to his kingdom whoever paints or submits the most perfect p um, picture of peace he will give this big prize to and he got all these submissions of like a beautiful sunset or a calm river or um, you know a, a meadow of, of wildflowers but the one that won was a violent storm in the middle of the ocean with lightning strikes above it and 30 foot waves and in the midst of it was a rowboat with a guy sleeping with a smile on his face. Because that's true peace. In the storm, how do we stay centered? At my job with all the insanity, how do I stay centered? Because I can't control how other people react. So God save me from being angry. Thy will be done. <clears throat> so 
Let me think. So does anybody have any questions? We have about four minutes till our break, so I'll wait and do the fourth column. We'll do you and then you. Oh, no. That, I was going to ask about the fourth column, so we'll do that later. The fourth column is what we're going to do after the break. Okay. 